0: Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well, especially those at home who aren't with us in person. Um, we have been doing a series and seeing Jesus, and I love that song. I just, I just want to say the name of Jesus. I want to declare it because that's really what the book of John does, and there's power in the name of Jesus, and that's what we really gather around and celebrate in this book. And um, Shelley went over the chapter 2, and it was where Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding feast. And through it, you just see so much imagery, so many beautiful pictures, and you know things are shifting in the spiritual. You see Jesus at a wedding, a wedding of a bride and a groom, and it's a picture and an image that's used throughout the Scriptures to celebrate God's relationship with His people in the church. You also see Jesus turning something as mundane as water into something beautiful, and you're seeing this new, Wine, another image that comes through the Bible over and over again. And then we see how, even the significance of of jars that are used for ceremonial cleaning, seven of them that then he changes and he turns into wine. God is doing something new. And now in chapter three, we see some scriptures that are fairly well known. In fact, John 3:16 is probably one of the most well-known verses that most people can quote off heart. And the day of by heart and the danger with that is that we can switch off when we hear those scriptures, but there is a fresh reminder of what God has done and a fresh celebration of what he is doing in our lives and daily as people are being added to the church. It's a verse of victory. It's interesting because we often take that verse for non-Christians in the book of John, but but actually some would argue that this is a a, a, a a book that was written for the church and for the believers to establish them in their faith. And so when we read these scriptures, that's really what we are doing. We are once again getting that firm foundation and being established in our faith. And I don't know about you, but I can never get bored or tired of hearing the name of Jesus declared. And so, we just thank him for these scriptures. Now, in the time that the scripture, John 3 verse 16, is mentioned, it's in an account where Jesus has a conversation with a man called Nicodemus. And if you know Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee governed by laws. His life was governed by laws. And I could never really understand or put myself in his place because my faith is governed by the Spirit and by the Word, and there's freedom in that. But as I was thinking, we're probably in a season where we can understand the burden Of the laws more now than ever before because we've had laws that have governed safety in society things like you aren't allowed to steal you aren't allowed to kill you shouldn't be doing this maybe some of you battle with the the laws we had in place for speeding and speed limits but besides that it wasn't a daily um it was something that was there but we didn't always interact with it now we interact with law on a day-to-day basis as we have to check our lifestyle and govern our lifestyle by the COVID laws and the protocols that are in place. If you think about when, especially when it first happened and you had to work out, if you had COVID, I need to quarantine here. I must go for a test on this day. I can go back to work. But now all my family, and we were always trying. I know at Noah's Ark, we were trying to do this, like figuring out how does this all work and figuring out these laws. And then it's the masks and the sprays and the everything else and all of a sudden, we're feeling the weight. Of these laws because it affects me every single day. Where I can't even shop in peace, I've got to sanitize here and then, there and then, there and then, and there, and there. And it's also interesting to see people's different responses to the laws. You have those that are ultra conservative, and often it's like that in every area of their life, and they want to obey the laws 120% and do even more. So if you say one and a half meters apart, I'm going to say two. If you're going to say clean your hands, I'm going to do it every five minutes, if it's every 10, you know. And it's people who just really value ticking every every box then you get those that will fudge with the law you'll see those um, I'm sure you've seen all types of masks coming up but people who really just got frustrated and just were trying to abandon everything what who's you to tell me I need to wear a mask why must I do it and the, the burden of it was just getting too much. You get those who genuinely try to obey, but sometimes forget. The other day, I walked into um, checkers, and the security guard that usually sprays was kind of standing backwards. I didn't see him, so I walked in, did my thing, and I saw him kind of waving, thought, oh, friendly man, waved back, and then I realized, oh, I hadn't sprayed my hands, and so sometimes we break the law in ignorance, but wherever you stand on that spectrum in terms of the law, there's one thing that we are experiencing right now is that every day our life is being controlled by these laws. And that was what it was like in Jesus' day. And so this is a very significant conversation that he has with a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus was probably part of the 70 Sanhedrin because um, Jesus addresses him uh, in the Scripture and says, art thou teacher of the Jews? And that would have been your kind of cream of the crop Pharisees who were, were part of being like purists and separatists and working through the laws and helping them to, to kind of govern the people. Um, but the problem with, with these sort of laws, that they were meant to point to how man needed a savior, except what was happening is people were starting to try and save themselves. And if you've ever tried to rescue yourself instead of God doing the work for you, you know that it's futile. Nicodemus hadn't got to that point yet, but we know a few other things about him. If he was a Pharisee, there was about 6,000 of them who were, who were working with the law in everyday life. And what they had is they had things to help them codify the law, and so they would break it down into these and teach it to others and try and make sure others were were sticking to it. And so they had something called the Mishnah, and in that it would explain and unpack the law. So if there was, for example, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, they would have 24 chapters on what that looked like. And then they would explain it even more because they had the, not just the Mishnah, but they also had the Talmud that explained the Mishnah. So there was a law about a law about a law. And so things were, you can see where this is going. It is going that people either felt huge pride in fulfilling the law or they felt like complete failures. Sometimes people possibly were, knew that they were breaking it themselves but would walk around treating other people like, like they were better than them. As, as humans do have that tendency to do it started to get crazy where they were trying to navigate the one that I was reading was was so extreme it was what to do with a fig and so if you have a fig on the Sabbath day and you have Half of it, and you take it out and you put it in your mouth. That's not breaking the law. But if you have a whole fig, that is considered work because it's a bigger one and it's heavy. Then it would evolve to you can't carry something the weight of a fig with you on the Sabbath day. But if you have a half a fig at one venue and you take it out there and put it in your mouth, then it's eating. It's fine. And then you go somewhere else and you take the other half out. It's fine. But if you're caught with the whole one, it's a problem. Or if you're in one venue and you take half out at a time, you're still guilty. Can you see the, the burden of the law that is being placed on these people? And the problem with it was that Jesus identifies in Mark chapter 7. He addresses the Pharisees, and he addresses what really is happening. Because what was happening is they were paying lip service, but they weren't honoring God with their hearts. The law became completely external. And this isn't a Pharisee problem. This is a problem and a challenge that we all have. We have the Word of God. If it moves to the place of law in our own lives and our heart isn't there and we are not doing it to please God, we can be in the same place. Read what Mark chapter 7 Um, 5 to 13 says, it says, So the Pharisees and the teacher of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? The traditions of the elders were those writings to explain the the law and the commandments. Um, Instead of eating their food with defiled hands. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commandments of God and on holding on to human tradition. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that means it's devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. And that was the problem. They would take things, and they actually just managed to work a way around and find loopholes in the law so that they could carry on nurturing their selfish nature and their human condition. The law had become a trap. So they would say, if you had something that was devoted to your parents, that's their table, my table, and I need to feed my parents at my table, but now I it to God and his use. It needs to be solely devoted to God so I can keep it and I don't have to share it. And that's really what they were doing. And as you can see, they were becoming corrupt in all of this. So Jesus starts to identify these heart problems that he's seeing in all the Pharisees. And we also know a few things besides this man being weighed down by the weight of legalism and law. We know a few other things about him. The one thing we also know is that he's actually mentioned to you other times in the book of John, and I'll talk about those later. But interestingly enough, the one is when they're embalming Jesus. So it seems like there's a wealth there because he would have helped to provide the, the, the supplies for the balming and the herbs, and it would have been expensive, we also know that he was a well-educated man. He has a Greek name, and so he would have had this, this esteem and this pride. And we also know he was a Pharisee. So all in all, he would have been probably a, I don't know if you would say an eligible bachelor sort of thing, but that person that you would esteem in your community, this young guy who had it all going. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus some questions. And this is where we pick it up in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And so it's interesting. Some people say he was sneaky or ashamed. We don't really know his motive for for coming to God at night, for coming to Jesus at night. Um, But it probably also was that he just wanted a good conversation. Jesus was um, growing, people were curious, um, he was doing miracles, and he probably just wanted a conversation with Jesus. And it's interesting because he shows respect from the beginning. So when he approaches Jesus, he says, Rabbi, which was a teacher, teach me these things. And he says, you must be from God. He's, he's connecting the dots. He's seeing something that a lot of others aren't seeing. And so you also see through Jesus' response, you can probably see the motives of Nicodemus here because Jesus always responded as people needed and where they were at. So he would often say, you know, you brood of vipers, or he would know if someone was coming for healing. He would ask the questions and he would reveal the condition of her heart. And here he actually engages in a conversation about what it means to be saved. So I think, I, I assume that, that he really was a true seeker. He wasn't trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus replied in verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you are bo- they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So, as you see, they just start this conversation, and Jesus goes right into the point and starts speaking about what it means to be born again, and that he must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't come with any smart replies. He just comes with a few more questions. Verse 5, Jesus answered, "'Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit.'" That has confused a lot of people. Even in all the commentaries I read, you compare, and each one has a different opinion. Some say it's the waters of baptism. Others say the water of the Word. Others say it's just this cleansing that needed to happen, almost like a ritual. Others say the birth waters. But I actually think it could be all of those because that's the the beauty of salvation. It's like a beautiful diamond that reflects different aspects of God. And the image of water is used throughout the Bible, But there's an interesting verse that really does seem to sum it up and the purification that the water could supply. And it's in Ezekiel 36 verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't it beautiful that in the Old Testament, there's still this picture of salvation coming through of what it means to be saved, that beautiful image of, I'm going to take this hard heart of stone that you might have, and I'm going to make you a real living being. You're going to know what it is like to finally have life. Isn't that such a beautiful promise? In verse 7, he says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. Um, you hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everybody born of the Spirit. And how you have this beautiful, really, a summary of, of it is that something new is happening. That there are no longer laws and these predictable formulas that will govern your life. It's going to be like the wind. I did have an incident. I was trying to explain the wind to my, my son two weeks ago, so I know this, and it is. It's, un, it's so hard to grasp because you don't know where it's originating from, but you see its power and you see its work. And it's such a beautiful image of salvation that all of a sudden, when the Spirit controls your life, there is a new a freshness that's coming through. And people that are led by the Spirit have the Spirit in them, And this wind is going to take you wherever. Life is no longer going to be predictable. And you can understand for someone like Nicodemus, who at that moment heard the truth explained that way, it would have been a mind-blowing reality. If you think as human beings we want life to be predictable, I want to know what's happening tomorrow. I want to have the little formulas of this will happen at this time because it makes me feel safe and secure. I'm sure for some giving up the laws and the rules that govern their life, like one day when we hopefully don't have to wear masks and it might feel actually very strange. And all of a sudden you have to give it up. So sometimes giving these things up aren't as easy as they seem. But God was calling him just to come into this beautiful relationship where you can trust me. You can trust where I'm taking you. You can get on the boat and just sail with the wind, and I'm going to take you there. And there's going to be this new beauty and ease of life that you are going to experience. Something I forgot to say in, in verse 6, I don't think I read it, but flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And there's something interesting because I've always read over those verses and never thought much about them, and it's flesh gives birth to flesh. If you've got flesh... And you're living on earth, then someone with flesh gave birth to you. And the spirit gives birth and, and breathes the breath of life into you, the spiritual life. But actually, for, for the Jewish person, this was quite a thing because they believed their flesh, their humanity, gave them entrance into heaven. And the stories and accounts, and and they would say that Abraham was almost like a bit of a gatekeeper at hell, making sure that no Jewish people entered into hell by accident, because it was your right, your fleshly right, to be part of the kingdom. So this violates and equalizes everything, and it goes, flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. I am doing something new. I'm going to breathe my spirit into your flesh, and you are going to be a new being. Verse 9, Nicodemus asks yet another question. Do you see the pattern here? He's just asking question after question, an inquiry into what Jesus is doing. And his next question is, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replies, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? It's interesting that someone could speak all these words and say everything And he was a Pharisee knowing every law. He was a teacher of the law, yet he didn't understand salvation. And for me, that is such a big warning. We can sprout every word. We can know the verses. But there will come a time, we're told in the Bible, where some people say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name and that? And he'll say, I never knew you. Because it has to do with that living relationship, walking with God, being born again. There's a story of... um, I think I said I think I said Stephen this morning, but Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, and and how um, that he's met and encountered on the way from church. He's riding his chariot, and he um, he's reading the scriptures, and then. He begin, they begin to engage on Do you know what you're reading? Isn't it sad that a man is coming from a place of worship, he has the scriptures, yet he has no clue about salvation? And that is the problem. And then, right there and then, he responds to the message of the gospel and he gets baptized. And that is that sad reality that having a Bible in your home, being a card carrying member of a church, is not your ticket to heaven. As being born into a certain people, group, or whatever, it is salvation through faith alone. And that is what he's pointing to. Verse 11, "'Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven.'" the son of man. So Jesus has been breaking it down and using all these metaphors and descriptions, and he still doesn't seem to be really understanding. He's actually been blinded. The law and everything else has blinded this man's eyes. And so Jesus once again points him to another image that he would have known really well because it's in the Old Testament. And it's when Moses lifts up the snake in the wilderness. It wasn't the snake that saved them. That was a symbol of their sin. And what they had done, it was an offense to God. Um, But in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. It was in that belief, in the looking to Jesus, that it gave eternal life. It's a step that we need to take. And isn't it beautiful that it's so simple as just looking? The work has been done. I just need to step in. I need to look at what God is doing. And then we get to that such a well-known verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we've read this over and over, but I, I found it nice. It was called just the seven wonders of John 3:16, And it's slightly cliched because it uses alliteration, but I loved how it just broke down each reality. And for me, when I went over it, and that's why I put it up, and we can just take a moment to look at it. It's such a fresh reminder of what God really has done and what this verse really means. Because sometimes I just brush over things when I know them well. Let's take a minute to think about the fact that God the almighty authority, the creator of the universe. God, who is so much greater than I am, so much bigger than I am, he is my creator, yet he is the one that took the first step. So loved the world, and that was his motive. It was a motive of love, that he gave his only begotten son, the greatest gift if you are a parent or you have anything or any personal family member that you love dearly and you understand the sacrifice of sending someone to do something on your behalf to bring the world to yourself, the enormity of that, that whoever, and that's the widest welcome and that gives us the the, the invitation that we also extend to others, that whoever, we sometimes want to put a uh, a thing of, I believe that person should be saved. I've got a very nice, like a burden for this person. They're so nice. Imagine what they would be if they were a Christian. But what about the people that you think don't fit into the whoever? It says whoever believes in him. And that is the easiest escape. It's that simply I choose to put my faith in him, should not perish. And that is the divine deliverance. That is what we are taken out of and rescued from, but have everlasting life. We have no clue what is waiting for us, but we know that the way we live life, we have complete hope. Isn't that a beautiful picture? When I was preparing, and I forgot to put it in my notes, but I read such a nice quote. So sorry, I just bought the commentary with, and I don't have glasses on, so that's going to be a problem, but anyway. Um... The love of God is limitless. It embraces all mankind. No sacrifice was too great to bring its unmeasured intensity home to men and women. The best that God had to give, he gave. His only son. He's well-beloved. Nor was it for one nation or group that he was given. He was given so that all without distinction or exception who repose their faith on him might be rescued from destruction and blessed with the life that is life indeed i just loved that phrase no sacrifice was too great to bring its unmeasured intensity home to men and women the best that god had to give he gave his only son his well beloved isn't that such a beautiful reminder and although we hear these things often and we probably being in a church have a probably a, a understanding, a very good understanding of what it means to be saved. But what we need to remember is we need to continually appreciate what God has done. And for a man living according to the law, and for people who don't know God, people that you might be interacting with on a daily basis, that is a mind-blowing reality, what we have just read, because it changes my whole life and where I'm going. Verse 17, for God did not send his son, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now, I really think, and it's just something I felt we really needed to quickly just do a bit of a sidebar on, is that there's no condemnation big picture. We are now in Christ, and we do not have a condemnatory relationship with him. We are saved, and we can know with certainty that we are saved. But the sad thing is that that so many Christians still walk with a spirit of condemnation, feeling condemned by God. If you're in relationship with God, that is not the status of your relationship with Him. He is not condemning. And so many people that I chat to, and I've had it in my own life, we felt the weight of condemnation. And what really struck me is that if Satan can keep us in a state of feeling condemned, he actually robs us of the joy of our salvation, So big picture, we're not condemned. We know when we stand before God, we are in relationship with Him. We can celebrate that love relationship, but it also takes away any condemnation that we might feel when we walk with Him. God lovingly comes and He convicts and He speaks to me. The devil is the one who tries to keep us in a state of condemnation. And if he can, he robs us of our joy, he robs us of our authority, he robs us of our, even of our desire to know, to hand our faith on to others because it doesn't feel that great. Being saved doesn't feel that wonderful. It should be the best thing. It is the best thing that has ever happened to us. And so we need to let condemnation go and deal with it. And the way we deal with it is taking it and submitting it to God, our Father, and, and once again putting it at his feet because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? But there is another side to this, and this should be something that we keep in mind too. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And then it talks about where Jesus went next. It's almost like that that closes off the conversation and the rest of the verse says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside. But can you see these two interesting realms that are emerging? There's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. There's one where God rules and reigns where there's no condemnation. And there's one that is where people stand condemned already. There comes a time where we need to decide who we are going to serve. There comes a time when those around you need to decide. And it doesn't seem like there's any in between. It's a kingdom that you're either in or you're not. And maybe you're here and you've never accepted God as your Savior. Maybe there's a reason why you're here today because you needed to hear that. And for those that are and know God and love God, this verse also needs to concern us. It needs to deeply concern us that there are people around us that are in a different kingdom to us, and it's a kingdom where they will face a condemnation. And that is why we need to be praying for opportunities. We need to be looking for opportunities to share our faith so that we can give this message to others. Something else I love from the Scripture is just how Jesus, just in the book of John, as I mentioned before, he just meets people at his point of need. We can react to it, and, you know, we can often, and and I probably was a bit like this. I got taught how to share the gospel, and it was like tick a box, tick a box, tick a box. Okay, you've said 10 things, and I hadn't asked the person one thing and didn't even know what their needs were, and I guess that's what I love about Jesus, and what I've learned from him is just how he actually knew God's heart so well that He could interact with people, that He could take the gospel message and He could share it with people while still caring about them, while still journeying with them. Um, I'd read that everyone's birth experience looks different, and it's the same in the kingdom. No two births are the same, and isn't it beautiful that although this message is for everyone, God journeys with us in a unique journey that's so beautifully ours. And that is just something that we can celebrate. In... With Nicodemus, and you track because it just ends there, but you see that he has two other mentions, the one in is in John chapter seven, and that he speaks up to the Pharisees because they are unfairly accusing Jesus and they want to seize him and in 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 as I said in John chapter nineteen when he comes and he helps in the in the embalming of Jesus. And so you see this journey. Although you don't know exactly what has happened to this man, it seems like his heart had been softened by the gospel. It seems like he came with a genuine need and genuine questions, declaring that Jesus was rabbi. He was Savior, Messiah. He was from God. And so the question is, how do we respond to all of this? And I think it's that very simple thing of We must be born again, and others need to be born again too. Sometimes we can simplify what it means to be born again, and we feel like once you've prayed that prayer, you've got the ticket into heaven, but it's so much more than that. I read this nice summary of, um, you know, what it means to really have faith, and it it was three words in its alliteration again, but um, it's credence. It's just that believing, saying, yes, Jesus is Lord of my life, but then it's shifting to confidence putting my complete faith in Him, trusting Him. And then it's the continuance. And that's walking with Him daily. That is what faith is. It's not about just doing the one thing. And it's almost like the day, you know, I would in a two marriage, the day I put the wedding ring on. That was my covenant to Jono, that I was going to live like a married woman. I was committing my life to Him I wasn't going to change the boundaries of what marriage meant. I wasn't going to make decisions. I don't decide I'm just going to move and relocate to East London. I don't just decide I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to change the direction or whatever, because we are now one and we do life together. It's that beautiful unity. My view of marriage doesn't get changed when I sit amongst other people who might be downing marriage. And it's the same with our faith. I don't change the boundaries of it. God has set the terms of this beautiful relationship I need to walk with him daily. I need to be consulting him every step of the way. I need to be enjoying the beauty of the love relationship. I need to be just um, enjoying and feeling like I've been led into safe pastures. I don't take this, this wedding ring off and I don't take my faith off. I don't tweak it to suit what I might believe or what feels good at the time the verse starts with, for God. The Bible starts with God in the beginning. It always starts with God. I don't set the terms and conditions to the walk that I have with Him. And that is the part where if you've been walking with God for a long time, you can often take that part for granted, that I need to be staying with Him. It's interesting because in Greek and Hebrew, there's normally 20 words to describe one word, but what was pointed, what I'd read was also the word faith and faithfulness. Are actually the same in Greek and Hebrew. So you don't always know. It's almost used interchangeably. But isn't that beautiful? To have faith is to be faithful and to have faithfulness in God. Are you in a faithful relationship with your heavenly Father? Or are you always changing the terms and conditions? And then we need to seriously start praying for those who don't know God and for challenging people around us and praying for those opportunities to be able to speak the name of Jesus into their situations. We're going to be moving into a time of communion, and what a wonderful way to close off a service where we focused on what He has really done for us. Jesus came and gave it all. To think about the fact that when He said, The the words, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus knew where He was heading. He knew the price He was going to have to pay. Those would have been some of the weightiest words He ever said. But He wasn't holding back. He was pouring out His life. And our faithful response is that we don't hold back on Him. And so as we come to this table, I just want to challenge you. Just We're going to take a bit of time just to quieten our hearts. And once again, just submit our hearts to Him. If there's things you need to deal with, maybe a faithlessness in your own heart or something that really is a barrier to, to experiencing that close unity with God, maybe it is that these words have become dull to you again, that you will have a fresh understanding. Because as we come to this table, we are celebrating and declaring that we love God, He loves us, and that we celebrate what He has done. But I also know that there might be people here who have never stepped into that relationship. And I would so love the opportunity to chat to you and pray for you more if you feel like God is calling you today. I think it would be wrong for us not to have that opportunity. There's pastors and elders here and many people in the church who'd be willing to pray with you. So don't, um, there's a verse that says, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear Him calling, don't harden your heart. And so we don't want to harden our hearts to what God is saying to us. And so we're going to just have a time of reflection, and then I'm just going to lead us into communion. But just take a few quiet minutes just to, to pray and submit what's on your heart to God. As we, as we stand together today, and I'm not sure if we still are online, but if you're online, please join us as we really declare what God has done. And He is such a good and loving Father that He didn't hold back. And may we just pray for a fresh understanding and a fresh appreciation for what He has done as He sacrificed for us. So Lord, we just come. And we commit this time to you, Lord, this remembrance meal, this communion, a time of unity. Lord, where we can appreciate that you took the first step for us. For God so loved you. Thank you for taking that first step. We know that the price was your only son. Thank you for seeing us. Is that valuable that you would send your only son? Lord, I pray that we will come humbly, Lord, just appreciating what you have done. Lord, I pray that we'll come grateful, just valuing the sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we'll come not holding anything back, but that we'll respond to this love relationship, Lord. Lord, keep our hearts faithful as we have a tendency to gravitate towards rules or laws or doing things our own way. May our hearts stay faithful to you, Father. Amen.